Blog Talk Radio. Chuck Morris, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. You're welcome to join the broadcast. 347-327-9849 is the number. 347-327-9849. And we are awaiting the arrival, hopefully quite soon, of my good friend, Dr. Samuel L. Blumenfeld the author of NEA Trojan Horse in American Education, The Whole Language, OBE Fraud, and other excellent books. In hour number two, I'm looking forward to a bit of a departure uh, from the hard news to talk about something that is actually quite more relevant to um, many, if not most of us, and certainly of, of me, and that is how to make a buck on the Internet. We'll be joined by Steve Olsler, Olsher, Steve Olsher, who is the author of a best-selling book, "The World's Leading Experts Reveal How to Profit Online: Internet Profits." Hooray! I want to hear that one. He's a University of Texas law professor. Um, let's see. He says. Uh, America reinvent, reinvention expert and author of Amazon's number one rated book on web marketing. Uh, I don't know about you listeners, but I am always interested in the topic of, of web marketing. You know, this is a web radio station, after all, right here at Blog Talk Radio and at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. So I'm always studying the issue of how to basically capitalize online, how to create an online business, uh, doing whatever what it is I do, and figuring out ways to offer those as products that are marketable. So I'm looking forward to talking to Steve Osler in our number two today. Maybe we can learn something about uh, this new and wonderful thing called Internet businesses. I'll tell you one thing that is good, and that is this PayPal um, I have a PayPal account, and it is very, very good. Uh, you can put a link up if you're selling something. In my case, I'm selling books, and I'm selling radio time. And you can uh, put a link up on a blog site, on a website, that all one needs to do is click on the Buy Now button, and they can buy the product online. And then when you, what happens when they buy it, is that PayPal puts, first of all, they put the money directly into your PayPal account, which is connected to a debit card. Secondly, they take out a tiny fee, and I'm talking about less than, I think it's 1%, well, like 1.2%, which means that um, if someone spends $10, PayPal gets a dollar. Actually, I think it's even less than that. I think it's, uh, well, actually, if they got a dollar, what am I saying? That's 10%. If somebody spent uh, $100, PayPal gets a buck. So, you know, it's it's a pretty good deal. And uh, they only, of course, take these when there's a transaction. So there's no money that comes out of your pocket. It's all out of the proceeds. And that's all they do. There are no other fees connected to it. It's just simply 
the uh, transactional fee at the time of the transaction. And then they send you an email telling you exactly who put in how much money and what their address and email is so that you can then email them the product. So let's say someone decided to buy a copy of my book, which is available online, at least a PDF of it is available, that being The Monkey Trial, Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. They go to my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks. They click on Buy Now. They enter $3.75 from their credit card or their PayPal card or whatever. Uh, the money is immediately deposited into the uh, PayPal account of uh, Chuck Moore Speaks, and then the uh, purchaser of the uh, book gets a PDF within probably, hmm, I'd say, an hour or so. Uh, you know, it, it all depends on when I get to it. I mean, it's a, you know, it's 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 the kind of situation where, um, I mean, I got this idea from Michael Hyatt, who is an online expert. He sells his books and he sells his media kits and, and, and his self-help stuff uh, through his website. And, of course, he's a big-time guy. I mean, he's got uh, best-selling books on, on Amazon, and he's, he's a big ad agency guy, so he gets a lot of hits. But he says, hey, you know, it's like making money while you sleep. You know, you wake up the next morning, click on, you know, power up the old computer, take a look at your website, and you've made like a – You've got something like 30, 40 orders. All you need to do is it takes about 10 minutes to click uh, the orders uh, out to uh, those who purchased it, and the money is already directly in your account. So this is a topic that is certainly interesting to me. I hope it's interesting to my listeners, you know, how we can get into a little business in this coming year, especially in these rather bleak times, and how we can market whatever service we have. So um, I'm, you know, that along with the fact that I am now marketing one-hour broadcasts, uh, both live in a downtown radio studio, and apparently he, I was at the studio yesterday training uh, in terms of how to actually handle the board, which is not that difficult, and their equipment is very, very good, and they're very concerned with sound. And uh, they've told me that I can do these podcast interviews remotely, at least in terms of people not coming to the studio but calling theirs in, as long as those who are calling in are using a microphone or they're doing it from a radio studio because these guys really are concerned and they really care about how something sounds. They don't want a tinny sound going over their airwaves. They don't want uh, like a, you know, a telephone call. I mean, it's one thing for someone to call in to a radio show. Everybody does that, but to have a, a full one-hour interview with a podcast, they insist upon good fidelity. So I, I respect that a lot, and I'm looking forward to booking uh, those uh, those interviews in this coming year. I've already booked two. Um, they uh, and they can be paid for through online. You can uh, you can I mean I'll take the money any way you want to send it. <laughs> I mean you could send me a check too, of course, but. Uh, it's fairly easy to just go to the Chuck Morse Speaks website and uh, click on the uh, PayPal button, Pay Now. costs only 135 bucks, And then I contact you, and we, we, we go back and forth. We schedule in a time for you to come into the studio. Or if you w are able to do it remotely, that's okay, although I, I prefer seeing people come down. 
and um, we then discuss a little bit what it is you want to talk about. You can email me um, talking points, <clears throat> various uh, you know due diligence websites for me to study, so I can get up on up to speed on what you're about. And then you come on down to the downtown studio. Uh, there's the the lights blinking and the the microphones. It's you sit there. The, we go on the air live, and we do the show for one hour, in which we primarily talk about you. Uh, my role in this is really as a facilitator. I do not get into my political opinions or anything else. I'm not. That's not my function. My function and my experience with this is to help my client tell their story help them develop what it is they do, why they do it, what they're offering, how they're different from their competitors, how they got into the business, maybe tell a few jokes, tell a couple of funny stories of experiences they've had. You know, it's an informal, classic radio context. It doesn't sound like an infomercial, even though technically it is. It sounds like they are regular guests on Chuck Moore Speaks, and it's, of course, called Chuck Moore Speaks Special Edition. After the hour... And after we wrap up the conversation, they then get from me a podcast of that interview. I email that to them or to you, the listener, if you are interested. And that is a complete one-hour audio of the interview, which you own. And you can then use that by posting it up on your, on your website. You can email it out to friends or clients or colleagues. And uh, it's it's these are popular. I've done this at other radio stations in the past, and I've always done well with them. I use, as soon as I start making money, usually some bastard comes along and gets rid of me, but that's another subject. The point is that I've done it, and I've done it well, and people have told me that they really like these things, and it's fun. Um, you get to then um, keep it and send it around. It lasts forever. You know, it's a... It's yours. It's like part of your property. So this is what I'm up to in terms of online entrepreneurialism. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking to my author uh, further on how to make the most out of that. Uh, you can, by the way, check out those, those, two, um, those two products, that being my online book and the one-hour radio interview podcast by going to Chuck Morse Speaks, and uh, you will find their information about how wh how this thing works. You can find out how to contact me directly. And if you want to book a time or you want to get a copy of the book, you can just order it right then and there. Anyway, I don't know exactly where Sam is, but uh, I'm hoping he's okay. I'm hoping it comes up shortly. I think I'm going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. By the way, you're welcome to join the program. If you have anything on your mind, feel free to get it off your chest. 347-327-9849, uh, 347-327-9849. Oh, the computer's a little sticky today. It looks like it's not going to happen. All right, so we'll just have to keep talking. Um, oh, I'm not going to be able
off. Good. We are back. Uh, welcome to the program. I don't know where Sam is today, but uh, he seems to be maybe slightly detained or, or whatever. Uh, he's in, as they say in the business, he is indisposed. <laughs> uh, but we'll see what happens. Um, what's going on in? I wanted to talk with Sam about this business of um, the Right to Work Committee victory in the city, in the state of Michigan yesterday. The um, state legislature in Michigan voted in favor of freedom, the right to work, the right of uh, individuals to have the choice of joining a union or not. Um, they don't have to be in a union. The closed shop states tend to be the more liberal states. It's kind of interesting that way. You know, maybe this is an example of what I've often talked about with regard to more authoritarian orientations by liberals. Uh, but uh, the, this is another. This is the first time a major northern industrial state has opted for uh, for right to work, which is to say that uh, people who work in a blue collar job. I'm not sure if this affects public unions, but it certainly affects private unions. If they work in a union shop, they do not have to, by law, join the union. Um, you know, this is. Uh, these are laws that um, are not appropriate, in my opinion, in a free society where people have to join a union, they have to pay dues to this union, and the union often does not represent what, they, what they're interested in and their interests. The money goes to political parties and, and political candidates who then uh, are beholden to that union. And, uh, and the whole system is extremely corrupt, always has been. Now, does this mean that unions in the state of Michigan are in any way harmed by this? Actually, the, the fact of the matter is that, uh, and I'm not against unions. I've been in unions. I was in lo Local 24 here in Boston, so I'm not, uh, not anti-union. And the bottom line is that unions operating in right-to-work states have done just as well as unions that are in closed shop states. So it's not anti-union. All it is is that the union itself has to compete for labor. They have to compete for membership by offering the uh, workers a service that they actually want. You know, they're, they're held accountable to the same free market forces as anything else. And the result of that has been that the unions have improved in the, uh, in the right-to-work states. I mean, because they, they've offered better services to uh, employees in order to attract them and to stay relevant and stay vibrant. So I think that this is a good development, um, and it is not something that is necessarily anti-union at all. Now, in my book, uh, which uh, will be finished uh, hopefully uh, maybe early next year, I mean, at this point I, I wanted to have it finished by the end of this month, but um, I haven't been able to do it. I just have other things going on, and Sometimes it's hard to stay motivated in these things because, you know, this is the sixth book I've written that is unpublished. So <laughs> it's not easy to keep up your spirits when you keep, you know, writing books that, that don't get published. So, but, but I've stayed in it and I'm, I'm dedicated to it like I have been to all of my books. And, uh, but the progress is not as quick as, as one as I would like because, uh, you know, I have to sort of conserve my, my energy with it and, and, and just push forward when I can. 
But the chapter that I'm once I've finished editing all of the chapters I've written, the new chapter is going to address this issue, which is how how Republicans and conservatives can bring unions into their fold and union members, because I think that unions and uh, the, the Association of Labor should be a Republican cause. It should be a conservative cause. Unions should be conservative. If they were, uh, they would be, by being so, unions, and I'm talking here again about private unions. Public unions are a whole different animal. Uh, private unions would be acting in their self-interest. They would be acting in their interest of their workers, of their members, if they were conservative. For example, um, one conservative issue that is generally discussed is the careful regulation of immigration. Um, that's not to say that they want to ban immigration, but generally the conservative position on immigration is that immigration should not outstrip economic growth and sustainability. And, and that means that the natural position, therefore, for the union would be to support limits on immigration, you would think. And yet the union brass and the leadership are very pro-immigration, unlimited immigration, and granting licenses to illegal aliens and whatnot. I believe we got Sam Blumenfeld on the line. Sam, how are you? Fine, fine. Good to be with you, Chuck. Sam Blumenfeld, of course, is the author of NEA, Trojan Horse in American Education, The Whole Language OBE Fraud. Sam, I'm sure you noticed the news yesterday coming out of Lansing, Michigan. Oh, yes. You know, the thugs were at it and were pretty violent. And this, this one reporter from Fox News was pummeled. And yes. then they, they tore down the tent of the um, an organization for prosperity. You know, the um, yeah. I forget what the full name of it is. But, I mean, this is what we're dealing with. You see, uh, Obama can call out the troops at any time. And that's the way the left operates. That's how Hugo Chavez operates. That's how uh, uh, Castro operates. I mean, you know, they bring out the mobs to, in, to intimidate anyone who opposes them. But and it didn't work, Sam. They well, did, no, it, of course, it didn't because the, uh, the, the uh, legislature and governor of Michigan were not to be uh, uh, – you know, they they stood their ground, which is important. You know, Sam, it, this has been a defeat for the Obama administration, and I'll tell you why. First of all, the Obama won the Michigan election under yes. what I think most people consider rather suspicious circumstances because the polls indicated going into Election Day that Michigan had tightened up to the point where it was a virtual dead heat between yeah. President Obama and, and Governor Mitt Romney. And then all of a sudden, on Election Day, um, there are districts in, um, in, in Detroit where Obama gets 98 99% of the vote, and, uh, and he wins handily. And yet, the uh, other elections held statewide, the down-ticket elections for states, legislature, state senate, uh, they all went Republican. So... Uh, you know, it was all it was a big Republican sweep in Michigan, except for the top of the ticket. And right. I think that's why the uh, state legislature felt emboldened enough 
and, and courageous enough, I might say, because in a sense they put their own necks on the line, literally, with these yeah. thugs outside. They stood up and they did the right thing. They made Michigan a um, a right-to-work right state, work. and it's the first northern state other than, uh, I think, Indiana, the first yeah. big sort of Rust Belt state to to have a, a right-to-work um law passed. So yeah. this is a very, very positive development. It is everything to do with what you and I have been talking about for the past several years with regard to, um, you know, a, re, a re, revisiting of union power, certainly a revamping and a perhaps rescinding of public union power. And um, and it all started last year with, with Governor Scott Walker. So I see this as a continuum, and I think it's going to continue to reverberate across the fruited plain uh, throughout this next year as more and more states wake up and take action. Yeah, I, I agree with you. As a matter of fact, the power of the Republican Party is not in Washington. It's in the state governments. Right. And because they're local and there's more control over the um, honesty of the elections when it's, con when it's local. Uh, and, um, and Obama won because Axelrod, who is the man behind the throne who knows how to get out the votes, mm. they know how to get out the illiterate vote. I think I've mentioned that to you before. Yes. The illiterate vote, those are the votes that the uh, community organizers get out. You see... Uh, Obama, of course, as you know, is a professional community organizer, and yes. he goes he goes to the poor of the poor, the uh, illiterates, uh, and the underclass, and he gets them to the polls. Ordinarily, these illiterates don't vote; they're not interested in politics; they're only interested in television. But with incentives, they can be brought to the polls, and in the case. In Ohio, we know definitely that in the Cleveland area, the Democrats were giving the illiterates uh, cell phones. Yes, you know, a million so they're, cell phones. They're bribing them. Isn't bribery a a crime? Well, you know, Sam. Unfortunately, this has happened in American elections going way back. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, we could look at the election of Tippy Canoe and Tyler too. In right. 1840, they were handing out. They were putting – they had – I mean, elections were even more corrupt in a way because they had voting booths inside of saloons, and uh -huh. they'd bring someone in and give them a shot of whiskey. <laughs> and, then they, after, and then after they vote, they'd give them another shot of whiskey and bring them back for another vote. Well, so, I, I mean, mean – But the, but the uh, Obama people have perfected that sort of thing on a massive scale. I mean, you're talking about one or two people in a bar you know, in some rural area. Right, but right. But Sam, the problem is that if, if what you're talking about is not illegal, I mean, we could talk about the illegal votes, and that's a that's a very interesting topic. I've gotten into that. But um, if this is what they have to do to get out their vote, give away free freebies and, and, and truck people to the polls, then, then the only response to that by Republicans is going to have to be to figure out a way to more effectively – get out their vote, and they didn't do that. 
Uh, well, you know, not we, only we just, that, but, but, but you need the voter ID also. You know, that's well, that's what I want to talk about. The fact is yeah. that the, uh, we're now talking about legal voting, not illegal voting. So, you know, we could talk about and, and, and we should talk about how to um, improve the, um, the number, you know, the, reduce the number of illegal votes. And those are high. Uh, and they always have been. That's nothing new. I mean, that goes back. Remember, there were jokes about Kennedy uh, with oh, the, yeah. um, you know, the, and, the, the uh, graveyard. And Chicago. Yeah. You know, and you know how that works, Sam. And and even Chris Matthews has talked about this. Uh, he grew up in Philadelphia. He's witnessed it. What happens yeah. is that um, you have people on the voting rolls who have either passed away or they've moved out of state, and yet their names are still registered on the voting rolls. And you've got a Democrat, or in, in some cases, I suppose, Republican. It's not that Republicans never do this, but in this yeah. case, we're talking Democrat because they own the big cities. They've got a Democrat ward healer, what they used to call in Boston, oh, yeah. Yeah. who is inside the voting booth on Election Day and who is watching these lists. So when you go in to vote, they check your name off a list, right. and toward, toward the end of the day, when it's pretty obvious that people – on the list are not coming in to vote, yeah. these board healers will cast the vote for them. That's how that works. You mean they can actually, uh, you know, vote for somebody else who isn't yes. there? Yes. But yes. That's illegal, that's, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a, it, in fact, it's a it's a serious crime. But when you have a uh, a precinct uh, location, a voting location, where you have all these Democrat hacks there operating it, yeah. They do it. I mean, it gets done, and I think that we should note that in uh, Philadelphia, early in the day, all of the Republican poll watchers, they call them, were kicked out, and they had to go to court and get a ju- get an injunction to go back in. They did get back in, but by the time they got back in, it was already later in the day. Who knows uh, what happened? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you, you have this phenomena. There's also the business of um, – Joe Farah has a very good article up, up about this, Sam, on World Net Daily. Um, today? As a, as it was today's. yesterday. And, yesterday. Um, I mean, he goes a step further than I do. He believes that the election was stolen. I don't say that. I think that Obama did win it, but I think that um, the Democrats, knowing what you know about power and about this uh, anything goes and the, the Alinsky approach, they had their machine in place to – uh, you know, to tip the scales if things look close, and and to and that meant including illegal voting, and the way that and besides the, uh, the 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 Democrat poll workers voting in the name of people who didn't show up, they also have uh, these things where, in fact, there was a sting operation performed by uh, James O'Keefe from uh, from Veritas. Do you know who James O'Keefe is? Is he the fellow who did in uh, the? Um uh, Acorn. Yes, he is, uh-huh. and he has an. He is a follower of Saul Alinsky, on our side. I see. Yeah. <laughs> and he went undercover, or he has people now working for him. He had this guy go undercover with a microphone attached, and he met up with this 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 Democrat hack, uh, Patrick Moran. He's the son of radical left-wing congressman Jim Moran in in Virginia and he was working for his father and he posed as a democratic operative he, he wanted advice on how he could uh, get people to go to the polls who were illegal aliens and vote and um 
young Patrick Moran, and the whole thing is on video, a really scuzzy-looking guy. He uh, he gave this uh, undercover guy a complete instructions on how to um, to get people's uh, you know to get like a utility bill or something with their name on it, very easy. And he said, and then you just show up at the polls and present this. But in advance, you call the voter, pretend you're a pollster, and say, are you planning on voting this Tuesday? And if they say no, then you know that uh, you can do this because they're not going to be there. And what they do is they then go into the polling place with this phony ID. And he also said, that being Patrick Moran, that there would be a Democratic operative inside there to make sure everything went okay and that you weren't questioned. And uh, and this is all on tape. It's actually on YouTube, and it's a, a widely viewed tape. In fact, uh, Patrick Moran, once that came out, he immediately resigned, and the attorney general in, in uh, Virginia was looking into pressing charges against him. I don't know if that ever went anywhere. But this yeah. this occurred just a few weeks before the election, and I think it's an interesting uh, depiction in terms of how this is done. The other thing is absentee, absentee ballots. Put in place in the um, in the in the 1980s, but but accelerated under the Clinton administration. Uh, every election, there is an increase in the number of absentee ballots, and most people who are experts on on voting will tell you that that is rife with corruption, and that it makes sense. That it would, yeah, I mean, yeah. it only makes sense. I mean, that you don't see the person voting. Right, How do you right. know who filled that thing out? Exactly, exactly. You know, we remember the Al Franken election. Some guy showed up with a trunk filled with votes. I think it was something like 300 votes, and all 300 of them were for Al Franken. Yeah. I mean, how likely is that? I'm sure Al Franken also got in by fraud. Oh, yeah, that's the biggest. I think even most Democrats admit that. I mean, that was an outright uh, ripoff. I mean, that was – and I think it was – his opponent, Norm Coleman, uh, it was Harry Reid, who was a, you know, the, the left-wing uh, Senate uh, w- majority leader. He said to Coleman, he said, don't come to Washington because I am not going to seat you. You're not coming. <laughs> you know, we, we're going to have Franken come hook or crook. <coughs> and, and that, of course, is how it went. Franken yeah. came in with like 200 votes over Coleman. The whole thing started out with Coleman ahead by several thousand votes. Yeah. So yes, it was these this is how this works. But Sam, you know, look, I've been talking about this for a while. Uh, this is going to be it's it's something I get into detail in in my new book. And that is that Republicans rather than sit around and whine about this, we have to form our own shock troops. We have to develop our own infrastructure in every single city and town in this country, and we have to do it through these city and town committees. Uh we can't just sit around and you know, if these city and no, town you're, committees. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right, but the problem with these Republican town committees is that they're run by um, establishment type hacks. Right, they're run by hacks, and who are either not very bright, or you know, don't want to make waves, or they well, that's right, Sam. The situation you've got to well, have. I think that's true of the state level, like the state Republican parties, like in Massachusetts. It's nothing but a bunch of hacks. You're quite right. These are people who just, you know, they're they're trying to get a job or they're just, you know, they're kind of liberal, easygoing types. But the city and town committees, you get some people on those who can be dynamic. The problem with them is that they're so weak in Massachusetts, and I'm sure in other of the blue states, 
that you have a bunch of people, basically, they're usually elderly, and they get together maybe once a month at a Chinese restaurant. Right. You know, they have lots of, they have chicken cashew on the menu, and they, <laughs> <laughs> they, they just you have a exactly nice. You know exactly what they order. <laughs> I do. I've been to these things. And they yes. basically have a few laughs, and they, you know, they, they gossip a little bit about, you know, they complain a little bit about the Democrats, and then they go home. It's yeah. not. It, it's a social get together. It's a coffee clutch. But you they know, don't, the, uh, the, the kind of groups that have made waves in this state are like, you know, um, citizens for limited taxation. I mean, which yes. is not in the uh, not in the political arena, and yet it has an influence because it gets the voters to pass such uh, legislation, and uh, that's where the. Republican action seems to be where libertarians and conservatives can work together to keep taxes low. But, um, you know, but but you're absolutely right. The work should be done by the Republican committees in every town in this state. Exactly. You know, I mean, these things yeah. are sitting there waiting to be activated, and, the way, and they should not look to the state because you're right, the state's filled with hacks. But, right. but what they should be doing is they should get some young, savvy journalism student at maybe a local college who's Republican right. and who's conservative to come in and start to work on public relations, sending out press releases, getting involved in a particular political cause in the local community, not maybe in the state, but more local, you know, like, Absolutely. Uh, you know, Absolutely. like investigating some corruption situation, investigating some you know, uh, I don't know, infrastructure thing. It can be anything that's going on, and they should start I, I sending think, out. I, I think last week you told me about a position that was open. Uh, what yeah. was it, something for deeds? The, registry uh, of deeds. Yeah. And by and the way, the, regist the registrar of deeds, I should have done. You know, look, when I went into the polling place, I looked at it, and I said, you know, I probably would have, could have run for this, and I could have won it. And the way I could have won it is is as follows. First of all, to get on the ballot for a position like that is probably no more than maybe at most 100 signatures, maybe 50, uh -huh. which means that you can just go around your local neighborhood and ask right. your friends and family members who are registered voters to sign it. Uh -huh. And then once you're on the ballot, you don't want to make a big splash. You don't want to alert the media because they're going to attack you. Right. You, keep, you keep a low profile. In fact, you stay out of the media. But what you do is you begin to form a social networking database yeah. and you start to call people around the city and quietly tell them that you're doing this and would they please support you. Don't accept any money, no campaign yeah. contributions. It's all by, you know, there's this incredible, you see, we have, and, and this is something I'm getting into in my book, there's this incredible structure of communication now, the first being the Internet with the social networking. You, right. you, you establish a Facebook page, you establish a LinkedIn page, you establish right. a Twitter page, and you start to build people, friends, hundreds and hundreds of friends on those pages so you can send out an instantaneous message to them. The second thing you do is you go to the local cable station. And, uh, Sam, you've been on my cable show. I used to do cable. Oh, yeah, many I times. Mean, you know, yeah, I haven't done it. Exactly. I haven't done it lately, but... When I did that cable show, the little secret to cable, and cable is an amazing thing, they're looking for content. They're looking for programming. And if you do a program on cable, 
they're going to run that show every single day. They're going to run it two or three times a day sometimes. And as a result, and, and they run it late at night or they run it early in the morning, as a result, everybody in that community will eventually see the show. And if you well, do uh, them, many, many, you told me many people recognize you in the street. Well, that's what happened. Did. After about yeah. six months of this, I became a celebrity in my town. Everybody uh-huh. knew who I was. People were stopping me on the street. They, oh, I recognize you. I don't know yeah. who you are, but I've seen you around. I mean, you, it, in other words, and it's all free, by the way. So yeah. is the social networking. It's all free. You don't need money. And yeah, and you yeah. build these programs. You can get that program carried in the neighboring town if you get a sponsor, and you just uh-huh. bring it over and they they play it. And and it's this is what the Republican town committees need to do. They need to have a Republican town committee cable show. They could get some young student again or some you know somebody who's well, retired. But you know what you what you know what you ought to do. You ought to write a manual, a manual for Republican town committees. How to make your how to make Republicans known. And describe all these things. List all of the things that they can do so that a young Republican coming on the scene now will right. be able to do all of these things. But somebody has got to put it in a kind of manual, probably, you know, 10, 15-page little booklet that, right. could be, uh, that could be distributed. Uh, because uh, when I, uh, as a matter of fact, on Friday, there's going to be uh, the uh, Citizens for Limited Taxation meeting, oh, you know, our Friday meeting. And um, what Chip does at every meeting, he asks everybody to identify themselves. Mm-hmm. And most of these people are local Republican committeemen from their various towns. And, of course, we don't know who they are. We don't know what they do. And uh, But the, the, the one thing that could energize them is to have a manual that says this is what you should do to get free publicity. It's all free. Right. You know, that's the beauty of it. And you don't have to raise big money. Because during the various meetings that we had last year, what happened was mainly candidates would show up, and mm. they would tell us who they were and, and sure. where they were running. Well, you know, you you yep. were one of them. I mean, BLAP was there. And That's right. Others. I actually went to one of them, yeah. Right, and the pitch was for money. They needed money. They're sure. so expensive yep. to run. But it's not expensive to run for a town committee. You know, well, and, the thing and, is, you're right, Sam. To be on the town committee is 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 cost nothing. I mean, it's just uh, all you have to do is be a resident of that town and a registered Republican, and you're in the committee. Right, and right. right. I, I've, been, I've been invited to uh, be on the uh, Waltham Town Committee, but I just can't yeah. do it. You know. Well, that's but right. I've been and, invited. And exactly, and you could. You could be like an associate member, and then you could get voted in as a full member. But it's all local. It's not an elected position. It's it's you know it's a it's just a local position. But the thing is that these town committees, besides sending out their press releases and getting letters to the editor and getting in the news, and the newspapers will carry these articles. Yeah. You know, even if they carry it in a negative sense, they'll still carry yeah. it. Right. Getting the cable up, getting the social networking up. The other thing they have to do is they have to start fielding candidates for office. And that means every office. That that should be their main function is to field candidates, you know. That's right. And and once they field the candidate, they have to support the candidate 
in several ways. I mean, they have to nurture candidates, and that can be anything from a high school or college kid to a, a retired person to a woman who maybe is uh, her children are off to college and she wants to get involved in a cause. It could be anyone who has some time on their hands can get yeah, involved. As a, as a matter of fact, uh, a young fellow uh, became very well acquainted with uh, Dr. Jefferson, and he used to hang out with her you know, right. he, uh, from Arlington High School. He was the one who complained. I, I forget the issue, whether it was the, uh, uh, the, the um, Pledge of Allegiance or one of, that, one of those kinds of issues at the school, and sure. he made a name for himself. You but bet. I haven't heard from him yet. You know, I, I would hope that I imagine he's now in college because he was in high school at the time. Mm-hmm. that when he gets out of college, that he gets into Republican politics in this state. Well, you know, and that's the, 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 the uh, town committees have to continue to nurture people. They can't just let them go. Right, uh, They have right. to, and if they do run, and every single office should be challenged, because if you go to the polls, it wasn't just the Registry of Deeds. There was a whole list of offices where people, Democrats, were running unopposed. They just, uh-huh. you know, they didn't, they're just in there. I mean, there's no one to vote for. And, um, once they get their candidate and once they help their candidate get signatures by going out with clipboards and standing in front of Star Market and, and asking people to sign it for them, then they have to support the candidate with money, which means not only writing checks you know, uh, from, from themselves, but holding these little coffees and you know these little fundraisers for the candidate so that they can right. speak and that everybody can throw money into a hat. Yeah. But 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 secondly, they need to support them with what's called in-kind support, and that's where the left is very good. And that means you have to have a field team that goes out and holds up signs. Like for example, the Brooklyn oh, yeah. Town the, the ones on the corners. I've seen them. The sign holders. But yeah, the, but you don't but see. The, but our but our problem in this state is that people like Warren, Elizabeth Warren, or Kennedy, who won in Brookline. Those people get enormous amounts of money from outside the state because they're considered, you know, uh, vital parts of the uh, right. of the Democratic uh, Party, and especially senators. Well, know. Sam, I'm not even talking about those kinds, you know, running for federal office here. We're talking about local offices. I'm talking about school committee. I'm talking about yeah. city council, state rep, state right. senator. You know, you know, if somebody can get their foot in the door and get into those offices, then they can begin to build and momentum. Like that's how Scott Brown did it. I mean, yeah. he started out as a local city, a town alderman. Then he became a state rep. Then he became a state senator. He was in there for something probably the better part of ten, fifteen years before he was able to take a crack at the U.S. Senate. So we have to build from the ground up. We have to support candidates. A school committee, As somebody who has an issue that they're concerned about in the school, they have a son or oh, daughter absolutely. in the school, and, and and the and the committee has to go out and hold up the signs. You're not going to compete with Joe Kennedy and and them. I mean, they've got you know rabid you know these, these brain dead you know type of supporters that these drones who go out there with their blank look in their face holding up signs. But <laughs> you can yeah. at least get somebody to make a presence with yeah. a sign or two, you know, in Coolidge Corner or in Newton Center or yeah. in Arlington Center or in uh, Moody Street. 
you know, maybe on the weekends. And, and, and well, those uh, are the kinds of in-kind yeah. support things that are going to make it. I mean, you get people to the polls on Election Day. You know, ACORN did a very good job of getting people to the polls. Well, we have to do the same thing. I mean, oh, absolutely. You, we can, we can absolutely. sit here and complain about voter fraud and about ACORN handing out free free cigarettes and booze. But we have to, rather than focus on that, we have to present, uh, communicate our issues well and then get our voters out and get them to the polls well, by driving I'll, I'll, them. I'll, I'll tell you what's unforgivable. What's unforgivable is to ha- have a Democrat with no opponent. Exactly. I mean, oh, it's terrible. I mean, you know, we can well, Sam, that's mouse up. Somebody, you know. I don't know if you voted this last Tuesday, but I, here in, where I vote in Brighton, there was a long list of candidates who had run unopposed. I mean, it was astonishing, actually. Well, and, that's uh, something that, you know, you, you ought to be uh, a, a leader in this state, a Republican leader. I mean, it's good, great that you have your forum, your talk show forum, but you should also use that to... Uh, to gain some influence over the Republicans in this state, because yes. first of all, you did run for office. Right. I mean, uh, you run, you ran against uh, uh, Barney, who is a tough nut to crack. Sure. Also, you've analyzed the situation so well, you understand it so well that that your advice, you can become the what are the the dean. Uh, Republican strategy in this state. I don't know of anybody else in the Republican Party who can articulate what the problem is and and offer a solution as you can. And well, I, Sam, hope, you will, I hope you will expand your uh, your reach in that way. Now, do you do you belong to any Republican committee of any kind? Nope, I don't. And, uh, and the Republican yeah. Party in Massachusetts is not going to want to hear from me. They don't like me. It's that well, simple. they may not like you, but the thing is you're trying to attract the younger people. Right. Well, the thing is like, I, I like might that get, high school student. I could yeah. get active in the Boston Republican Town Committee if there is such a thing. I don't even know if there is. Well, <laughs> you know, we once, we once had a vibrant conservative Republican movement in this city. You remember Gordon Nelson? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, and where are where are the Gordon Nelsons of today? Where is Gordon Nelson? He's dead. Oh. <laughs> he died. You know, he died early. But I mean, that was our tragedy is that we lost him. But I mean, right. we had somebody who who was you know shaking up the place and and could rally conservatives and and could articulate conservative views. And well, listen to that. this, Sam. I'm looking at Red State Red Mass Group, which is a uh, conservative uh, Massachusetts website. It says here, the Republican City Committee of Boston is back. It says, um, back? where were that's they? What it said, I don't know. They apparently did. They went into eclipse. It says, <laughs> if Massachusetts is the bluest state in the country, then Boston is definitely the bluest city in the county in the country. However, uh, we are trying to change that. On Tuesday, November 4th, the first meeting of the Republican City Committee of Boston came to order after a five-year absence. Oh, my goodness. My they God. didn't have a meeting for five years. And wow. this, is a major, this is a major American city, and they didn't have any Republican organization. Oh. The goal of the committee is to help promote good government, blah, 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 Republican ideals, 
<laughs> but now, who is the who is the the charismatic character in that group? Is there? I, I don't see, know. You, I mean, you've got to have a kind of Gordon Nelson type. Yes. I mean, somebody who stands out and who, you know, sort of um, he commands respect and he commands a, a following. And who on? Do you have the names of the people on that Boston committee? Does, does well, I'm looking at this article. Them? There's only one name, and that's Jason Healy. And who and they is say he? He's, I have no idea. It says I'm going to send him an email, though. It says that he's the chairman of Ward Seven. Um, let me just Ward, see. Longtime Boston. 7? Here we go. Longtime Boston resident and Republican activist Karen McNutt was voted in as president, and young Republican Brad Williams. I don't know any of these people was selected as vice president. Also, veteran activist David Trumbull was elected as secretary, and young Republican Patrick Brennan was named treasurer. The committee consists of the 80-plus members of the city's 11 organized ward committees. So there is an infrastructure. Yeah, so they have these ward committees. Of course, I don't know one ward from the from another. Right. I mean, you know, I, you know, I lived in South Boston. I don't know what ward that was. Oh, this was posted by by uh, Brock Cordiero, who I know from my run for Congress. He's a he's a very good Republican activist down on the South Coast, right. down in in New Bedford. So uh, think, you know, they uh, they actually have a pretty good committee down there. All right. Well, then what I think you ought to do is write a manual. It shouldn't take you long. You know, you've been sure. telling me all of this. What the what these committees should do, what they can do, what's available to them. You know, like Access TV, uh, the, the Internet, the Facebook, and all of that. All of this stuff is available. YouTube is available. All I have to do is mm-hmm. make some videos. I mean, n- n- oh, yeah. n- none of this costs much money. costs you know? nothing. It's right, free. Right, right. And then the whole business of that, you, that their aim should be to have candidates to, you know, Offer candidates for these positions that are now going unopposed. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, that would be a great help, I think, uh, to uh, revive re- Republican uh, spirits in this country, which are in the I doldrums at the moment, you know. Oh, I know. It's, it's awful. But, well, uh, that's what, there ought to be a meeting of some kind. Well, of course, this meeting that I go to on Friday is the only one I know of. Well, you get now, Sam, I might try to make it. When, when is that Friday morning? Yeah, Friday morning at um, nine thirty in Lexington. Do you know the building where it's held? Right. Yeah, right it's off Route One Twenty Eight. Yeah, Cranberry Hill. You know. Sure. It's, is it the same place as right off Route One Twenty Eight? Uh, yeah. Up near yeah, the up yeah, near yeah, the Burlington yeah. Mall. Right uh, on Route Two A. You know. The, oh, okay. I think I know the in place. Lexington. And, yeah, I could reach out to Chip Chip Faulkner. I mean, I know, I've I've been there before. Yeah, but, but I, mean, uh, I might I might try to get over there. This is this is um, because yeah. they're totally unorganized. I mean, so it's a forum. That's all it mm-hmm. is. It's a forum. But you know, when it's over, people go in their own directions, and everybody has their own little thing to do. Yeah. And uh, for example, one of my one of the people I've gotten to know is a fellow named Michael Gendra. Mm-hmm. Who ran for school committee in uh, uh, in his town? I think Andover or something. And uh, he didn't win, 
but at least he ran, you see. Well, you see, uh, and by the way, I have a note here. The, the South Boston is Ward 4, so that's where the heart of the Republican, Boston Republican, that doesn't surprise me. Good old Southie. Yeah. Well, um, I, also, I also lived in Dorchester, and I don't know what sure. that is. You know, that's a very mixed community, you know, Dorchester. Right. Now, Sam, the um, you know you say that this young candidate did not win, but what I would tell people is this: you probably won't win, at least not at first. But if you run, you're able to get out a couple of issues into the public thinking, you right, know, and right. that and that's very exhilarating. It's a great experience. You yes. can at least introduce a couple of things. I mean, you know, I mean, even my own candidacy, I was able to do that. I was able to bring up the fact that. Barney Frank was involved with this uh, Frank Amendment, which allowed terrorists to come in the United States legally because he thought it was yeah, discriminatory yeah. to ask people if they were terrorists. Yeah. And the result of that was that he was dismissed from the Homeland Security Committee because uh-huh. I sent a letter to every Republican in Congress and all of their aides, more importantly. I see. So these well, things can make great. a difference, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. maybe in some small way I might have con- – by getting rid of Barney on that committee, it could have saved – this country from God knows what. You know, who knows That's what right. damage you might have kept doing. But I think that what happened in Michigan is a sign that the Republican Party is not dead. It's 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 alive. It's doing things locally. Right. And that if we want and to also, win national... Let's want remember to win the fact that the, yeah. the election was extremely close. You know, and it the country close, is very right. divided. Yeah, yeah. Now, what are we going to do about this? What should the Republicans in Congress now do? I think what they should do is just offer to extend the Bush tax cuts for two years mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, you know, and advise uh, cuts in spending. And if uh, Obama rejects it, then, uh, then they'll, we'll go over the cliff and he'll be blamed for it because it'll be his doing. Uh, well, Sam, there's already been an article, that uh, an analysis done by a, uh, a nonpartisan congressional committee. I'm not exactly sure how they came up with this, but they point out that um, if Obama gets the tax increases that he wants, he's going to be spending about 75% of that on new programs. So yes, people need yes. to understand that this is not uh, something that's going to balance the budget. This is just more stimulus money, and and, uh, and for that reason – it has to be opposed. I mean, this is no time for another, you know, we've already got a $16 trillion debt, you know, and if you're going to expand the government by another how, how X number of dollars, that, that expansion is going to have to be paid for. It's going to only contribute to a well, debt increase. What, what should Republicans do? Well, I mean, I, I, I think should that they, they just have to hold the line and say no new taxes. Read my lips. No yeah. new taxes. And um, you know, let let go, you know walk away. And, and if and if there's this huge tax increase in January, I think Obama is going to try to blame the Republicans, and so is in the establishment. But he's president. Well, but 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 he won't be able to rep, uh, blame the Republicans for Obamacare because you know there are new taxes coming with Obamacare. Well, I don't think he's going to get away with blaming them with anything because he is the president. It's happening That's under right. his watch. And, and, you know, ultimately, people are just not going to buy that. I mean, he's going to preside over the biggest tax increase probably in the history, probably since World War II, I'd say. 
Yeah. And, uh, and I just, so probably and time, in the history of the Republic. Probably, probably. the biggest in the history. Yeah. Probably. And, and, and at the time and during a recession, I, you know, I it, it, already businesses are starting to um, shift. You know, you, you've got this mad rush to to pay get tax uh, policy done now because they don't want to have to pay the taxes of next year. Who knows how much uh, capital is is floating offshore? You've got people sitting on enormous amounts of capital in New York. They're afraid to invest it because they're afraid there's going to be another contraction, right. and uh, and that that whole policy is going to continue. We may end up going into another depression. So, if Obama thinks he's going to blame the Republicans, I don't think so. I mean, there's risks involved, but I just don't see that. Republicans are going to be able to say we have stood for for no taxes, and that's our position. You know the taxes well, have I, gone up. I hope that I hope they they take that stand. You know that yeah. we keep hearing that they're they're getting wobbly, as Thatcher would yes. say. No, and, exactly. Yeah, um, on the other so, hand, maybe they have to give a little bit of tax increase just to preserve the fact that we can't have this enormous tax increase on the on the lower and middle class in this country. I, I don't know. Maybe it is time to to consider that. I don't know, Sam. I tend to think that they should not accept any tax increase, but you know we have to look at the realities of the economy and put aside, you know, party and, and whatnot. And I just don't know if this country can sustain this enormous tax increase right now. Well, it can't. I mean, it's going to dam- it's going to do ter- ter- terrible damage to the economy, and a lot of money is going to leave the United States. I mean, exactly. look what's happening in France. Uh, where I read yeah. about one of their with Hollande, yeah, yeah, one of their big actors has moved to Belgium <laughs> across the border. You That's know, right. He doesn't want to have to pay this big new tax that Hollande has, uh, you know, is is getting wants. He wants a big tax, and Americans are now looking abroad. You know, also you have a. If you look at what's going on among the uh, people with money, many of them are trying to take it out of the country before Obama can t- get hold of it because they even believe that Obama is going to attach uh, retirement accounts. You know, oh, yeah. Well, that, that, so was, that was a, a trouble. Oh, huh? yeah. I mean, well, they floated that one last year. I mean, that's already been in the rumor mill for a while. And I think that that rumor was started by someone inside the administration deliberately because they kind of want to soften people up to that. But, yes, they're going to put – they're going to leverage retirement accounts in the same way that they've leveraged the Social Security system. And apparently, Sam, I interviewed a couple of economists on this topic. Something that we don't realize in this country is that the government – and this is both Democrat and Republican going back – that they have leveraged just about every fund this country has. Yeah. You know, they have borrowed against it. The Social Security, they've leveraged it with these with these bonds. Right. And uh, and that includes things like the, the, the any reserve fund that exists on the federal level, almost any, has been leveraged, has been borrowed against. So, yes, I mean, this is uh, – this country is, is – you know, this is part of the debt we're talking about. Uh, they're going they, – they are looking at, at pension funds. Uh, and they're looking at using those as leverage to increase credit and to borrow. So, well, you know, and all of these all of these public employees uh, have pension uh, pension funds. Yeah, I mean they're not they're not even aware that Obama may take their money. 
You know, I mean. Right, and they won't be aware of it until they go to, to withdraw it. That's and they right. Discover they find that, it that, the, that the federal government has uh, commandeered it, you know. Oh, boy. Yes. And I mean, incidentally, it's, it's, I, I, I hope you'll get Charles Murray on your show. Right. Uh, I, well, I have interviewed him before. He's very, very good. Yeah. I, yeah, I he has a new do. book out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to ha- I'd like to be on the show with him. Good. His new book is coming apart, and it's mm-hmm. with uh, it's about really what's happened to the the white uh, poor in this country, how hmm. they have disintegrated so so terribly, you know. I'll and of that course, I, attri- I attribute it to the education system, but he doesn't even mention that in the book, you know. I, I had him on once when I was on with Patrick, and he was very good. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yes, I'll see if I can set that one up. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'd li- yeah, I'd like that very much. Sam, I'm going anyway. to take a brief break. Can you sit tight for uh, just and finish no, up? No, I, I, I have to, to leave now, so I'll, All right. see you ne- I'll see you next week then. But hopefully you can come to the meeting on Friday. Right, I'll see if I can. You know, it's okay. not, I mean, I, I, I'm debating how to get involved, but I love the idea of writing that manual. That I can do. Yes, you should do that because that's badly needed, and it gives people direction. You know, that's the most important people. People have to know what they can do and what is not going to cost them an arm and a leg. You know, this, all Absolutely. these things you, you talk about are, are free. That's uh, right. But that's what you have to do in order to gain some kind of recognition in this state, you know. That's There's right. a lot of work to be done. Well, anyway, it's great talking with you, Chuck. All right, and, Sam. Um, hopefully I'll see you on Friday. All right, Sam. Thanks a lot. Okay. You're welcome. Okay. Bye. All right. Sam Blumenfeld, NEA Trojan Horse in American Education, Whole Language OBE Fraud. Japan. 
missiles are flying around the world. Uh, this is um, something that uh, are we getting used to that in this world? I mean, these are acts of war, uh, very provocative uh, situations. Um, I don't know if um, if this is something that um, you know is because of a, a sense that uh, there's a weakening or a uh, somewhat of a um, an appeasement policy in Washington. I don't know if that's true, but um, it does seem that uh, there are conflicts around the world that are heating up. Um, you've got. Uh, let me just take a look at the um, what, what's happening in Syria. Um, the uh, the Syrian situation is particularly troubling, and that is because um, Syria, apparently, according to various intelligence sources that I've looked at, including uh, the Depka file, which is a pretty good source, that they have a very large quantity of biological weapons over there and chemical weapons, probably the ones that were smuggled out of Iraq. You know, remember we were told, oh, Iraq doesn't have WND? Well, yeah, they don't because they smuggled it into Syria. And they could th- those are weapons that could could kill large numbers, you know, hun- tens of hundreds of even hundreds of thousands of people uh if they're released into the atmosphere. How it is that that governments develop these weapons is is really something that that should be viewed as probably the most despicable story of the 20th century in a way or at least the latter half of it that that we would would have you know and and I think that this country is not completely innocent on that one either uh we we probably have our own biological agents but to release a biological agent even the nazis shied away from for example the use of mustard gas on the field of battle because they remembered how devastating that was during World War One, when people were sprayed with this stuff in, in France. And um, there was kind of an informal moratorium on these weapons throughout World War Two that was not violated, uh, because they were so devastating and so awful. They would literally melt a person that, uh, that, that they just were not used, and they probably were not manufactured. And yet here we have a situation where uh, Syria has these stockpiles of weapons, and um, it's a very unstable regime. They could throw them not only at their own people but at Israel. So this is according to the New York Times today. Syrian forces loyal to Bashar al-Assad have fired Scud missiles at rebel fighters in recent days the Obama administration officials have confirmed. The move represents a significant escalation in the fighting, which has already killed more than 40,000 civilians in a nearly two-year-old conflict that has threatened to destabilize the Middle East and suggests increased desperation on the part of the Assad government. One American official, who asked not to be identified because he was discussing classified information, said the missiles had dis- had been fired from the Damascus area at targets in northern Syria. The total, and, and that's getting near the, the Turkish border, too, which, of course, if Turkey is attacked or if, if one of these missiles crosses into Turkey, 
then you have a, a not only an, an act of of internationally recognized war, of course, unless it's Israel being attacked by by Gaza, in which case it's ignored. But you also have the phenomena of Turkey, which is a member of NATO, and that means that the NATO alliance stipulates that if any one member of NATO is attacked, it is attacked on all members. And uh, that the agreement is that all the na- all nations have the option of going to war, and that includes the United States. So, uh, yeah, di- diplomatically speaking, it is you know a, a, a genuine prelude, uh, a closer uh, uh, you know to to war. Anyway, one American official. All right, the total number is probably north of six now. So there's been six fired said another American official, adding that targets were in areas controlled by the Free Syrian Army, the main armed insurgent group. Insurgent group. It is not clear how many casualties resulted from the attacks by the Scuds, a class of Soviet-era missiles made famous by Saddam Hussein of Iraq during the first Persian Gulf War. But it appeared to be the first that the Assad government the first Persian Gulf War, but it appeared to be the first that the Assad government had fired the missiles at targets inside Syria. American officials did not say how they had monitored the missile firings, but American intelligence has been closely following developments in Syria through aerial surveillance and other methods, partly out of concern that Mr. Assad may resort to the use of chemical weapons in the conflict. The Obama administration views the Assad government's use of Scud missiles as a significant escalation of the conflict, said a senior official. It also shows, he said, the increasing pressure on Mr. Assad since Scuds are primarily defensive weapons being used by the government offensively against a counterinsurgency. So there we have the phenomena of um, Iraq ratcheting things up and um, and using Scud missiles against their own people. We have North Korea launching a rocket in defiance of critics, obviously. Um, what, what, let me just see briefly what that's about. This is from the Reuters uh, News Service, uh, U.S. edition. North Korea um, <clears throat> successfully launched a rocket on Wednesday boosting the credentials of its new leader and stepping up its threat, the threat the isolated and impoverished state poses to opponents. The rocket, which North Korea says put a weather satellite into orbit, has been labeled by the United States, (coughs) South Korea, and Japan (coughs) as a test of technology that could one day deliver a nuclear warhead capable of hitting targets as far away as the continental of the United States. The satellite has entered the planned orbit, a North Korean television news reader clad in traditional Korean garb announced, after which the station played patriotic songs with the lyrics, Chosun does what it says, that is Korea. The rocket was launched just before 10 a.m., according to defense officials in South Korea and, and Japan and was more successful than a rocket launched in April that flew for less than two minutes. 
The North American Aerospace Defense Command said that it deployed an object that appeared to achieve orbit, the first time an independent body has verified North Korean claims. North Korea followed what said it said was a similar successful launch in 2009 with a nuclear test that prompted the UN Security Council to stiffen sanctions that were originally imposed in 2006. So it looks like the North Koreans have been successful in launching a missile. Um, what else is going on in the world? Uh, Obama predicts the GOP will cave on taxes. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe they have to. I mean, anything to avoid this huge tax increase in this country. I suppose that it comes down to, um, you know, you know pa a patriotic stand. You know, if we have to accept a tax increase in one area, then maybe it's necessary to avoid this huge tax increase across the board. I mean, I, I really, you know, it's a tough one um, to, to answer to. Here is a, um, a brief um, piece of information from the book I'm working on, uh, which is, in a sense, new strategies to uh, counter liberal and democratic positions in the post-election 2012 period. Um, this is a chapter on that I've just written. I suppose it's appropriate because of the um, the upcoming uh, possibility that the Supreme Court is going to be ruling on two cases involving gay marriage. Um, so I've written a chapter on that. And since my guest hasn't shown up, I might as well read it. A key to a solution for conservatives as they approach the growing acceptance in America of homosexual marriage can be found in the term marriage equality. This term has been embraced by the supporters of gay marriage, both as a means to insist that gay marriage is recognized as a form of marriage that is de facto equal to conventional marriage and as a bludgeon to be used against the opposition. The term marriage equality implies that opponents of gay marriage are against equality, and as such, that they, are, that they support discrimination. Yet, a further examination of the issue reveals which side of the debate is actually discriminatory. The main pitch for broad public acceptance of gay marriage and the impetus behind the call for its recognition as a legal entity on par with conventional marriage has been that the gay couple had no means of obtaining the same legal benefits that married couples enjoy. These benefits include health insurance for the gay spouse from an employer, inheritance rights, hospitalization visiting rights, and other accommodations that are offered to conventionally married couples. Yet if the benefit of marriage are to be extended, benefits of marriage are to be extended to relationships beyond conventional marriage, then why should those benefits be granted only to those involved in a committed gay relationship? The supporters of gay marriage are asking that the government grant their relationship legal recognition so that these benefits would be obtainable. Yet, why should the government not therefore offer these same benefits to others in committed relationships? To expect nothing less would be discriminatory. For example, theoretically, 
A person lives with and supports an elderly relative or a friend who is in declining health. Why should that person or that family not receive marriage benefits that would allow them to receive insurance from the coverage plan of the breadwinner? Putting aside the question about the future of employee-provided health insurance under Obamacare, why should that family not get hospitalization benefits? What if, theoretically, a person lives with a roommate who has physical or mental problems that make it difficult for the roommate to be gainfully employed. Indeed, any combination of two or more people living together might qualify for various marriage benefits, especially if one of the parties is a dependent. Why discriminate when it comes to legally granting marriage benefits to alternative families? There are various combinations of people living as alternative families, and indeed, this should be encouraged as family arrangements, traditional or alternative, are more likely to form self-sufficient units that would be less inclined toward needing government assistance. Why should the government specifically select gay couples to receive these ex expanded benefits and not grant these same benefits to others who choose to form family arrangements? As a matter of public policy, why should the government choose to grant benefits to gay couples over others? Certainly gay couples have proven to be capable of sustaining stable and committed relationships, and these relationships should be encouraged as a means of reducing promiscuity and encourage family stability and sovereignty in the gay community. While the committed gay family is actually a conservative social development, as public policy, it should not be the business of the government to determine the sexual nature of the alternative family. Civil union policy should be crafted by state legislatures and governors. There may be, at some point, a Supreme Court decision that circumvents the states and the possibility of an inclusive definition of marriage rights for alternative families on the national level by ruling, through fiat, that gay marriage is legal. It has, indeed, been a central strategy of the Fabian left to look to the judiciary to declare their political agenda as law if they fail to convince the great assemblage of the people, the elected state legislature and the U.S. Congress, that their agenda has merit. The left-wing agenda has been made more effective by the careful placement of left-wing activist judges into office by liberal elected officeholders. A hallmark of the authoritarian approach of the left is indeed expressed in the unseemly and undemocratic spectacle of unelected judges making law from the bench. It is through a ruling by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, after all, that gay marriage, let me just put that in there, that gay marriage became legal in Massachusetts in 2003. Since the definition of marriage was legally altered by Massachusetts SJC Chief Judge Margaret Marshall in the 2003 Goodridge decision, many states have followed suit. It should be noted as a matter of history that Judge Marshall, who wrote the decision legalizing gay marriage and who spoke of the lack of legal recognition of same 
to chattel slavery as equivalent to chattel slavery in the antebellum South was married to New York Times columnist Anthony Lewis, who was appointed by the Times to introduce gay marriage as an issue in the late 1990s. Lewis's columns influenced the thinking and writing of many liberal pundits around the country. And a cause was born, indeed, and thus, and thus, a cause was born. A little bit sarcastic there, I'd say, but... Indeed, before Lewis and the Times, and before the Times' own Boston Globe got involved in promoting gay marriage as a progressive cause, the idea of gay marriage as a legal entity had not entered the lexicon of the culture, and most people, including most gay people, had never considered it before. But this is history. This is water under the bridge, so to speak. By the election of 2012, gay marriage had become acceptable enough to, to enough Americans that it was winning on its own merit in referenda on the ballots of various states. It should be acknowledged that gay marriage seems to have worked out fine for many of the gay couples who have entered into one, and that gay marriage has had no discernible effect upon conventional marriage. In spite of such predictions by some conservatives, thus gay marriage became law through judicial fiat and collusion between a judge and a liberal activist colonist working for an influential establishment liberal media organ. Other tenets of the liberal agenda have also become law by rulings of liberal judges. How, then, can conservatives counter this trend? And in the process, how can conservatives bring the ability to govern and to make law back to the people and their elected representatives? The best approach is the counter-Fabian approach. Conservatives must consistently bring lawsuits into the courts to counter liberal rulings. And when they are turned away, they must file again and again and again in different guises until they receive justice. Such filings must serve as an educational opportunity by conservative pundits, intellectuals, and promoters who must then do their work of educating the public carefully and over time in the wisdom of their position. That position is nothing short of support for self-government, individual sovereignty, and the ability of the individual to control his or her own life and destiny. Gay marriage is only one example which could be cited in which this approach could be applied. If, for example, the Supreme Court declares gay marriage is legal, that then an alternative family, perhaps a family where a disabled veteran is living with a roommate who wants to obtain marriage rights to help him or her take care of their friend, should file a lawsuit to obtain alternative marriage, family marriage rights. This case could be brought into the court using virtually the same arguments that were made to legalize gay marriage. Unfortunately, these same arguments could also be employed to seek the legalization of virtually any form of marriage under the sun. 
this scenario would would play directly into would play into a long-term agenda held by some on the left who hold as an ultimate societal virtue what Sigmund Freud called polymorphous perversity. The criterion for a civil union license should not be based upon sexual preference, but rather upon need and commitment. Once an alternative family enters into a civil union contract, then it would be up to the family as to whether or not they chose they choose to consider their civil union as a marriage or whether to refer to themselves as married. Questions of community, property, divorce, child custody, and other family questions could be examined, and these questions may or may not exactly, may or may not be exactly the same as those which define conventional marriage. The state legislature, which is a reflection of the virtues and morals of the people they are elected to represent, would debate in open forums the definition of civil unions. There would certainly be nothing inappropriate from a public policy standpoint for a gay couple to hold a marriage ceremony and to consider themselves married. The gay couple would, under the regulations established that would constitute a civil union, be able to enjoy many, if not all, of the same benefits and responsibilities that a conventionally married couple enjoys. The gay marriage, under these circumstances, would not constitute any form of discrimination. Indeed, the civil union entered into in the more inclusive context would truly and honestly constitute the establishment of marriage equality. Some Republicans and conservatives have been accused of trying to, quote, legislate in the bedroom due to their opposition to homosexual marriage and their moral opposition to homosexuality. This accusation is not exactly true, and to the degree that it might be partially true, this position should be reexamined. Conservatives should not support public policies that would interfere with the nonviolent sexual activity of two consenting homosexual adults when conducted in privacy, and most conservatives, at any rate, do not support such policies. Laws that outlawed sodomy and other sexual practices are a part of the heritage of most nations in the world, and until recent decades these laws were embraced and were not controversial in most parts of American society. Were not viewed as controversial. both by the left, both liberal as well as conservative. The American communist left, for example, up until as late as the 1960s, opposed homosexuality and considered it as a decadent byproduct of the upper-class bourgeoisie. Communist countries such as Cuba have and probably continue to execute homosexuals. Certain conservative and religious groups and individuals should be urged to tone down their rhetoric about homosexuality and homosexuals simply out of a sense of chivalry in the interest of proper manners 
and as a means of respecting the basic integrity and the essential rights of all people to live freely and without harassment. By supporting the expansion of marriage rights to families based upon need, as opposed to supporting the granting of such rights, to a narrow group based upon their sexual orientation. Conservatives would be then free to speak their mind regarding their moral opinion about homosexuality. They should, however, conduct the conversation with care and with introspection. Without interfering in the basic rights and the essential dignity of individuals to live life on their own terms, Conservatives would be free to express their moral opinion regarding any form of sexual relationship outside of conventional marriage. It should be noted that the Bible preaches against many forms of sexual relationships besides the homosexual, and these include adultery, premarital sex, and even covetousness. Let's support a non-discriminatory expansion of marriage rights through a redefinition of the civil union. on the state and possibly on the national level. And let's express our moral opinions with regard to homosexuality in the context, well, I just don't even need to could remove that, in the context of respect for the choices made by individuals, even if we do not approve of those choices. So that's, that's what I've got on that. Um, this is all part of my new book, which is called a Fa- the Fabian ta- uh, account of Fabian revolution <laughs> or, or Fabian tactics. Um, you're welcome to join the program, of course. Uh, my guest uh, didn't show up, so I'm kind of swinging open the phone lines here. At Chuck Moore speaks, Sam Blumenfeld joined me in the earlier part of the program, and you can call in. You're welcome to call in at three four seven three two seven. Nine eight four nine three four seven three two seven nine eight four nine. Please stay tuned.
are back, 347-327-9849, Chuck Morse. Chuck Morse speaks Monday through Friday, uh, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Obamacare just raised your health care premium by $63. This is from Hot Air. If you're a member of the mainstream media, you are surprised by this in the same way that every bad job report is unexpected. <laughs> yes, of course. Among the regulations being rushed out of the door by the Department of Health and Human Services, 32 months after Obama passed, Obamacare passed, is a requirement that every plan in America be subject to a $63 fee. That $63 is part of a fund to subsidize people with pre-existing conditions who are more expensive to cover but whose costs must be transferred to healthier individuals in the new system. In other words, that is a direct tax on working people. Um, should we be covering pre-existing conditions in this country? Yes. Is there a better way to go about it? Yes, there is. We don't have to place a tax on people that the government basically gets to keep, probably keep most of it and maybe throw a few bucks off the table. What can happen, and uh, I've suggested it before, and I've talked to experts on this, is that insurance companies, and for that matter, other health providers um, who do business in a given state, could be could be required by law to to um, donate a percentage of their earnings, of their gross earnings, into a fund, into a pool, if you will, that is run and managed by the state and that is used to insure people with catastrophic illness. It's that simple. Uh, I think it could even possibly be done on the federal level, although I'd be more comfortable seeing it done on the state level where it's closer to the people, where people can be more directly evaluated to see if they qualify for this fund, if they genuinely have a catastrophic illness that uh, in which they cannot get insurance in the conventional sense or in which they've been denied insurance probably by two or more companies and uh, they ha they have to turn to someone because we want to have people helped <coughs> I mean if someone has a catastrophic illness and they don't have insurance I for one want them to be helped I don't want to see someone die or, or not receive necessary health care. The way it would work would be that this fund would be managed by the state in the same way that the federal government or even that state governments manage the pension funds of federal and of state employees. For example, a federal employee in this country, um, at least in certain branches of government, I don't know if it's in all, they have a retirement fund that, in which a portion of their paycheck goes into it, and it is matched by the government. And the money is ma it, it, they, they can invest that money in, in three different funds, all managed by the federal government, so that there's at least a level of safety and oversight with regard to the uh, the type of investments that are that are purchased. And, uh, you know, there's one that's very risky, there's one that's low risk, and then there's one that's moderately risky. 
And most people will spread their money out to all three of those so they can, you know, kind of hedge their bets and uh, and get the benefits as it were. Younger people who are starting out might be more oriented toward the higher risk funds because they've got many decades before they retire and they they, they want to take a little bit more risk to hopefully build a larger um, nest egg, whereas people nearing retirement might be more oriented toward the safer funds because they're in a place where they want to consolidate their estates and they're preparing for uh, as comfortable a retirement as they can afford. So it it all depends on what your station is in life and career uh, with regard to uh, which funds you're going to go for. Um, But either way, they are supervised by the state, and yet they are invested in private equity. Uh, some of, of course, is, some of it, of course, is invested in public debt, such as treasury notes and bonds. But um, you know, it, it's in other words, it's invested in the same way that uh, any mutual fund on Wall Street is invested, except there's government oversight and uh, the money has to stay there. Now, the difference here is that <clears throat> this fund would be. Um, required by our state's insurance companies that are at, of a certain size and possibly some of our big health providers like in Massachusetts we've got Partners Healthcare which owns Mass General Hospital and Brigham, Brigham and Women's and that uh, they take a percentage maybe say 5% of their profits and it's automatically contributed into this fund where it earns interest um, the money is then put aside for people with catastrophic illness who can apply for this fund. And if they're approved because they've been denied uh, insurance by other companies, then they're, then they're covered by the fund. Um, that, to me, seems to be a much better way to go than, you know, hitting people up with a, with a fee, you know, hitting every American working person up with another tax And I also would contend that it would not increase the cost of insurance. It would actually decrease the cost of insurance because it would cost the insurance company less to take 5% of their money and contribute it to this fund than it would cost them if they were forced to cover catastrophic illness. Uh, So, you know, in a sense, by getting those catastrophic cases off of the – the roles of private insurance companies, premiums would possibly go down. They would at least stabilize. And people with catastrophic illness would be cared for without the government getting a cut or being involved. I guess my reason for bringing this up is that there are more free market-oriented solutions to, uh, to these situations. We don't have to have the big government step in, but, you know, I mean, I think I feel like I'm just tilting at windmills here like Don Quixote because President Obama was reelected, so that's what we're going to get. Maybe we should just get used to it. Speaking of um, medical stories, this is an interesting one. This is from Great Britain. The cancer girl cured by the HIV virus. 77-year-old makes extraordinary recovery after the United States doctors rewire her immune system 
to destroy leukemia cells. Um, Emily had been fighting leukemia for two years, but relapsed this spring. Her parents put her forward for a clinical trial as it was the only option left. We had 48 hours to make a decision or Emily could have started having organ failure, the father said. Therapy, known as CTL1019, used used a disabled form of HIV to reprogram her immune system to kill cancer cells. Isn't that amazing? What a great story. Nice picture of a young girl, both before and after. She looks tremendous. In April of this year, Emily Whitehead's family had almost given up hope. The brave six-year-old had been fighting leukemia for two years, only to relapse for a second time during intensive chemotherapy treatment in February. Doctors had exhausted all the traditional treatments as Emily could not remain in remission for long enough to attempt a bone marrow transplant. So her desperate parents, Carrie and Tom, decided, started looking at more radical options. Isn't that amazing? We made the decision that we needed to go somewhere else, said Mrs. Whitehead. We needed to try something new, something different and cutting edge. So they turned to the cancer center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is involved in testing a pioneering new therapy. Note that they had to leave their native socialized medicine, England, to come to the United States where medicine is still free at least free in the sense that it's not regulated and controlled by the government. Doctors suggested they sign Emily up to a clinical trial that would use a disabled form of HIV, that being the AIDS virus, to carry cancer-fighting genes into her T-cells, disease-fighting cells. The hope was that this would reprogram her immune system to recognize the cancer cells and start killing them. Several adults had already been enrolled in the study at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and had responded well. But as it was so new, the treatment wasn't without risks. But time was running out for Emily, who was also known as Emma. Mr. Whitehead said, we were told that we were down to 48 hours of making a decision or she could start having organ failure. They they comforted themselves with the knowledge that even if the treatment didn't work, it would provide doctors with information that could help them save other sick children. So on April 17th, the then six-year-old became the first child to have the therapy known as CTL-019. Ah, there are some beautiful pictures of this child. The family had been warned Emily could experience flu-like symptoms a few days after her re-engineered T-cells were injected back into her. But her symptoms were far more serious than doctors anticipated. She became critically ill and was admitted to intensive care at the Children's Hospital. On April 24, doctors told her parents she had a one-in-a-thousand chance of surviving the night. Trial leader Dr. Stephen Group and his team realized that the level of a certain protein had become very elevated as a result of the T cells growing in Emily's body. 
This same protein is involved in rheumatoid arthritis, and there is a drug for that disease that turns the production of that particular protein, turns off the production of that particular protein. The team administered the drug to Emily with dramatic results. Almost overnight, her breathing improved, her fever dropped, and her blood pressure was back to normal. Mrs. Whitehead said Emily inspired them with how she coped. She's extremely smart and creative. She's funny. She makes us laugh all the time. She never complains, she said. Isn't that amazing? Her husband added, "We told her, she told us from the beginning that she would continue to fight and do what we asked as long as we were there with her. We stuck together as a team. She's definitely our hero. Several weeks after her T-cell infusion, they were able to conduct a bone marrow test to find out if the therapy had worked. Three weeks after receiving the treatment, she was in remission, said Dr. Group. Emily completely responded to her T-cell therapy. We checked her bone marrow for the possibility of disease again at three months and six months out from her treatment, and she still has no disease whatsoever. The cancer-fighting T-cells are still there in her body. He added that they, needed, they need to see the remission go on for a couple of years before they can think about whether she is cured or not. But after spending years in treatment, Emily went home in June and now enjoys going to school, playing football, and walking her dog, Lucy. Oh, I feel like crying. T-cell therapy was really the only option left for Emily, said Mr. Whitehead. But we entered her into the trial really hopeful, and from the very beginning, we just really had a good feeling about it. So all along, we said, it just has to work. It has to work for Emily, and it did. The scientists said, although the results were very promising, much more research needs to be done to see whether the therapy is a viable, safe, and long-term solution for controlling certain cancers in children and adults. Ken Campbell, Clinic, Ken Campbell, Clinical Information Officer at Leukemia and Lymphoma Research, said the results of the study were encouraging for both children and adults diagnosed with leukemia. Treatments which modify the body's own immune system to fight leukemia have shown much promise in recent years, he said. <clears throat> what is significant about the therapy is that the several side effects associated with this form of treatment seem to be greatly reduced when combined with other drugs. This is a small study of just 12 patients. Larger clinical trials are needed to determine how effective this treatment could be, and as a result, if it should be some time before it is available in the United Kingdom. Researchers from the University of Pennsylvania and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia presented their latest findings at the American Society of Hematology's annual meeting in Atlanta. They found nine out of 12 patients in the trial, which included Emily and one other child, responded to the treatment. The goal is to treat another 12 patients over the next year. That's very, very good news. 
You know, I mean, this is, um, in spite of all of the dreary news of the day, this is a major um, medical breakthrough. You know, it's a cure for a form of cancer, leukemia, one of the most deadly. What could be better than that? Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. So, anyway, that's uh, that's pretty much what's going on in the news, other than missiles flying um, in uh, Korea and in Syria. Eric Holder, the Attorney General, calling for automatic voter registration? Oh, boy. Anything to get out the vote, you know what I mean? He refused to talk to states who were trying to implement reasonable voter integrity laws, uh, just would not speak to them, obstructed their ability to do this. And um, yet he's calling for this this so-called voter integrity law. Ah, boy, you know, I'll tell you, again, Will.Daily has an excellent article up yesterday, and it's probably still available if you go there, about uh, voter fraud. Uh, it's something that uh, it's a story that I've been following, um, and I urge people to go to that voter fraud evidence. Now, I don't agree with Joe Farah again. I don't think that Barack Obama stole the election, but I think voter fraud is a systemic problem in this country. We had this conversation yesterday with someone who scoffed at it, but uh, to, to, to suggest it's not is, is very naive. Um, most of the stuff in this article, it's called Did Obama Steal the Election, is stuff that I've gone over already, so I'm not going to rehash it, including the counties in uh, Cleveland and in Philadelphia where Obama received 100% of the vote. That's a little suspicious, I must say. Listen, here, I'll read a little of this. Did fraudulent absentee ballots throw the election in Ohio this year? If there was significant absentee ballot fraud, one would expect to see a much greater ratio of absentee ballots submitted by Democrats. In Cuyahoga County, 43.3% of the vote for Obama was via absentee ballot, compared to 40.9% for Romney, a measurable difference, but not enough to raise red flags. The ballots would have to be individually examined to determine the extent of absentee ballot fraud. This could be a worthwhile investigation, perhaps, but is beyond the scope of this report. Just the same, it is clear that Democrats are up to something in the inner city polls. Their eye-popping and illegal stonewalling of poll watchers strongly suggests nefarious activity. The left's nationwide campaign to discredit voter integrity efforts as, quote, voter suppression, unquote, and their obstinate battle against voter ID laws only serve to reinforce this impression. Following are a few examples of real voter suppression and threats to voter integrity that occurred in 2012. 75 GOP vote vote inspectors were ordered to leave Pennsylvania poll locations by Democratic poll judges. One judge was caught on audio. A court order sent them back, but who knows what went on while they were gone. These poll locations were all within the 59 precincts, which Romney received zero votes. 
In Philadelphia, the Community Voters Project, an ACORN clone that employs some former ACORN workers, shredded Republican voter registrations. This is not the first time they have been in trouble. You want to talk about voter suppression? In Florida, AFL CIO threatened True the Vote and Tampa Fair Vote, these are conservative groups, with legal action for submitting voter registration challenges. Maryland Representative Elijah Cummings issued a highly publicized threat against True the Vote and election integrity, Maryland, just for checking voter rolls. EIM found 11,000 questionable registrations, including 1,566 dead voters. The Maryland Board of Elections took no action. Cummings also attacked the Ohio Voter Integrity Project with the same baseless claims. Think Progress falsely claimed True the Vote was under investigation by Representative Cummings, when in fact he had no legal authority to do so. Despite overwhelming nonpartisan public support for voter ID laws, Attorney General Eric Holder's Justice Department and liberal jurists have delayed, emasculated, or defeated ID laws in Texas, Wisconsin, South Carolina, Arizona, and Pennsylvania. Eric Holder has vowed to fight voter ID laws as restricting voters' rights. The Obama administration spiked investigations of eight states that had major voter roll problems. The Holder Justice Department conspired with Project Vote on National Voter Registration Act enforcement lawsuits, which forced states and local agencies to become, essentially, low-income voter registration drives. In 2009, the Department of Justice announced to its attorney, attorneys that it would not enforce voter roll maintenance laws because it wouldn't increase voter turnout. Yeah, why, what, what does one thing have to do with the other? Anyway, this is an excellent article. I really urge people to look at it. It's very, very comprehensive. Uh, it is called, Did Obama Steal the Election in 2012? Uh, again, I am not suggesting he did. I'm simply pointing out that um, there needs to be some major, major reforms in how we vote in this country. This really shouldn't be something that is so difficult to figure out. Um, I would argue that while voter fraud has occurred um, and has been done by both parties, it has it has become systemic in in more recent decades on the Democratic side. Republicans, you can point to isolated situations where it's happened. But uh, this is something that is massive. It is national. It is a conspiracy. It is something that uh, is uh, also very, very subtle. Um, it is not something that the Democrats use unless they have to. In other words, if you've got a... Uh, an election where the Democrats are ahead substantially, or for that matter, if the Republican is ahead substantially, then the Democrats are not going to pull out these tactics. They are there when you have a, a nail-biter, when you have a very, very close election in which uh, the election could be tipped either way. That's when you have these issues. That's why these complaints came out of the so-called swing states, 
particularly Ohio and Pennsylvania, but also um, Virginia and Florida. These were the big swing states. That's where you had deployed these sorts of tactics. And um, it, it's something that, um, you know, because we have state elections, not national elections, even our national presidential election is still actually technically 50 state elections, then this is something that has to be tackled on the state level by activists. And I think Sam Blumenfeld made the case very well that the Republican Party and conservatives are doing very well on the state level. We have captured more governorships and more state legislatures than ever, and that that's really where our power resides. Uh, we need to continue to work state and local governments, and then eventually you build from the you build up, um, and it's a great way to counter this kind of fraud. And that's what it is. Fraud. Anyway, I shall return tomorrow at the usual time, which is noon. I have um, actually I have a pretty pretty solid show tomorrow scheduled. Um, we, we shall see. What, what do I have? I'm looking it up right now. Um, I've got uh, – no, 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 no. That was in September. I'm looking at an old old piece here. Um, that um, I've got Max Blaustein, who is talking about voter fraud, and Peter Hannaford, who is the author of a book about presidential retreats. It's a pretty interesting and kind of fun book. On that note, I shall return, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Check out my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks, where you can order my book, A 